This program is a paid commercial announcement and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Your radio doctor does not recommend or endorse any specific tests, products, physicians, procedures, opinions, or other information that may be mentioned on your radio doctor. Always consult your own physician. Today's program has been pre-recorded. I'm Lisa Thomas-Laurie. If you're on Medicare, I've got great news. Keystone 65 HMO plans from Independence Blue Cross have earned five stars, Medicare's highest rating for 2022. Some plans have no monthly premiums, no deductibles, and no co-pays for primary care visits and some prescription drugs. Don't wait. Visit ibxmedicare.com slash star. Every year, Medicare evaluates plans based on a five-star rating system. Keystone 65 offers HMO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Keystone 65 Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. This is a paid endorsement. Talk Radio 1210. WPHT, WPHT, HD, WOGL, HD3, Philadelphia. From the Cherry Hill Volvo Studios, where relationships matter. It's time for the Delaware Valley's first radio doctor. On call every Saturday afternoon at 5. This is your radio doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. Listen, 7 months or 10 months is an absolutely exceptional, exceptionally short time frame to produce this vaccine. Your health determines your life, your longevity, and your happiness. Let your radio doctor lead the way with your medical education. Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. Good evening and welcome to Your Radio Doctor. I'm your host, Dr. Marianne Ritchie. More than two years have passed since we first heard the terms SARS, Severe Acute Respiratory Syndrome, Coronavirus 2, and the disease it causes, Coronavirus 2019, or COVID-19. Joining us today with an update on the vaccine and boosters is a man of great distinction, and I'm very pleased to welcome the return of Dr. Paul Offit, Director of the Vaccine Education Center and Professor of Pediatrics in the Division of Infectious Diseases at Children's Hospital Philadelphia, the Maurice R. Hilleman Professor of Vaccinology at the Perlman School of Medicine at the University of Penn, an international expert in the fields of virology, that's the study of viruses, and immunology, a member of the Advisory Committee on Immunization Practices to the CDC, a member of the FDA Vaccines Advisory Committee, a founding advisory board member of the Autism Science Foundation and the Foundation for Vaccine Research, a member of the Institute of Medicine and co-editor of the foremost vaccine text called Vaccines. With extensive research and the co-inventor of the vaccine for rotavirus recommended for universal use in infants, awards from University of Penn, National Societies, the Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, more than 60 awards from other national, international societies, foundations, and still finds time to share with us here on Your Radio Doctor. Welcome, Paul. Thanks so much for being here. It's my pleasure. Paul, let's bring everybody up to date. We should review a little bit, I think, and and go back to the goal of any vaccine, but this in particular. Right. So the goal of this vaccine, and frankly, it's the goal of every vaccine, is to prevent severe illness, to keep people from going to the hospital, from going to the intensive care unit, or from dying. That's the goal. And I think the, the, the immunological mediator of that goal, the part of your immune system that, that achieves that goal, are so-called memory cells memory B cells, which are the kind of cells that make antibodies, memory T helper cells, which are the kind of cells that help B cells make antibodies, memory cytotoxic T cells, which kill virus-infected cells. Um, those are generated um, at, at high frequency and are usually very long-lived. Now, that's not the mediator of protection against mild illness. 
Protection against mild illness is mediated by neutralizing antibodies, high levels present at the time of exposure, and that fades. It doesn't matter whether you've been naturally infected or vaccinated or naturally infected and vaccinated. Eventually, those neutralizing antibodies will fade. So this, these vaccines will be good at protecting against severe illness, but over time, not very good at preventing mild illness. Mm-hmm. And so for our listeners, the terms we use when we have discussions about infectious diseases or the immune system, antigen is the word we use for the enemy, whether it's a virus or a bacterium that enters our system and our immune system activates these soldiers. T cells, as you say, kill viruses and B cells make antibodies or soldiers that recognize and store memory so that if we train our system with a lookalike, like a little piece of RNA that looks like a spike, and our immune system says, okay, I'm making a memory. The next time I see a virus with a spike on it, I'm going to attack it. And so pretty much that's how the vaccines work, yes? Yes, that's right. Uh, And Mm -hmm. I think what what people need to realize is that if you have diseases um, like rotavirus, which is an intestinal virus, or influenza, which people know is a respiratory virus, or viruses like respiratory syncytial virus, those viruses are short incubation period diseases, meaning the time from when you're exposed to the time when you develop symptoms is relatively short. Therefore, although all those infections or vaccines will develop, will, will induce memory cells, there's not a lot of time for those memory cells to become activated, differentiated, in the case of memory B cells, make antibodies. And that's why with these short incubation period diseases, um, you're not usually protected against mild illness for long. That's different than the long incubation period diseases like measles or mumps or German measles or smallpox, where memory cells have plenty of time to become activated, differentiate, make antibodies, so you're even protected against mild disease. And that's why you can eliminate those viruses. You can eliminate smallpox. You can eliminate measles from the face of this earth. You can eliminate polio from the face of this earth. But that's not true for this kind of virus, where even if everybody in the world was vaccinated, the virus would still circulate, still cause asymptomatic infection, and still cause mild infection. That's such an important distinction, Paul, because I think a lot of people thought, if I get the vaccine, I'm good. What? How can I still get COVID? Or And you explained it so well, because I don't think people understood that initially. I think the average person thought they were going to have complete protection Right? Don't you think that's what uh, confused people a little bit? I think it still confuses them. I think that the the in uh, last July there was an outbreak in Provincetown, Massachusetts. Thousands of men mm-hmm. got together to celebrate the ho- holiday on July fourth. Um, most were vaccinated. Nonetheless, about three hundred and fifty got uh, COVID. Now, four of those three hundred and fifty were hospitalized for a hospitalization rate of one point two percent, which is actually excellent. But but the remainder had mild or asymptomatic infections, which unfortunately the CDC labeled as breakthrough infections. The term breakthrough implies failure, and and that's not a failure. If you're protected against severe illness, then that's what the vaccine is supposed to do. And I think it set an expectation for these vaccines that was unrealistic. Exactly. That's the word, expectation. So that brings us to the question, if a person has already had COVID, should they still get the vaccine? And I know what the answer is, but I'd love to hear from you. Well, I think the, the answer is yes. I think it does. Mm-hmm. What it tends to do is help broaden and mature the immune response to so-called hybrid immunity. Um, you could argue that, that, that with the mRNA vaccines, for example, you would only really need one dose because that, that one dose you've gotten after a natural infection tends to act like a second dose. So there's a number of studies that have shown that probably one dose is, is, is good for people who've already been naturally infected. But you have to make sure that you really were naturally infected and, 
that there's a clear proof of that. But I think there is clearly a value in getting at least one dose of mRNA vaccine if you've been naturally infected. And people now are familiar with the word hybrid for all kinds of reasons, like their offices are half at home, half half in the office, but hybrid, you're getting antibodies from the um, infection. And a big plus, you're getting more from the vaccine. So, And that probably helps with the current infection and, and future uh, variants, yes? That's right. I think what happens is, is, is the, uh, the immune response tends to broaden and become uh, more mature, um, the so-called maturational affinity uh, associated with, the, with uh, that vaccination, either, either vaccination and natural infection or natural infection and vaccination. You tend to have a broader response. But, but mm-hmm. the, again, I should make the point that there has not been a variant yet that has, has arisen anywhere in the world where if you've been naturally infected or vaccinated or both, that you are not going to be protected against serious illness. When that happens, when a, vac- a variant does emerge that, that it shows that even if you've been vaccinated or naturally infected, you still could get serious disease, then you're talking about a variant-specific vaccine. But we're not there yet. Thank goodness. So, and if a person's had monoclonal antibody therapy or even what we used to say convalescent plasma, that's not a reason to delay the vaccine either. So what have we learned from the vaccines so far that have been in common use, the Pfizer, Moderna, and Johnson & Johnson? Right. It's actually all those vaccines have been remarkable. I, you know, the, the virus was first isolated and sequenced, meaning its gene was its genetic sequence was determined in January of 2020. Nonetheless, mm-hmm. 11 months later, we had two large clinical trials, one a 40,000 person trial for Pfizer, or a 30,000 person trial for Moderna using a novel technology, messenger RNA that had never been used to make a vaccine before. Um, that was remarkably effective and safe. I mean, it wasn't absolutely safe. I think what we learned for the mRNA vaccines was it was a rare cause of myocarditis, which is inflammation of the heart muscle. I think what we learned with the J&J vaccine, the so-called vectored virus vaccine, is a very rare cause of blood clotting. But all in all, I think uh, there's probably not a scientist on the face of this earth that would have imagined these vaccines would have been as effective and as safe as they were, and it made us quickly. It really has been incredible. And I think, too, Pfizer and Moderna are pretty much uh, pretty equally effective. Um, but as you say, the, the one side effect that has been noticed is inflammation of the heart. And what we've learned, uh, and correct me if I'm wrong, for the Pfizer, the two shots would be separated by 21 days, Moderna 28 days. And since the people at risk for that heart inflammation with vaccine are, are young adolescent and young men from ages 12 to 29, if we separate those doses by eight weeks, down goes the risk for myocarditis. So that's something very valuable that we've learned and should take the fear of the people facing that decision for their young ones, yes? Yes, that's right. I mean, I think, realize that, as you said, it's sort of a phenomenon of the, the uh, primarily the 12 to 29-year-old. It doesn't appear to be a phenomenon of the 5 to 11-year-old, at least for the first roughly 10 million doses mm-hmm. that are out there. I mean, it does look like spacing it uh, out longer does lessen that risk. But but know that the good news is, is that myocarditis appears to be short-lived, transient, self-resolving without any permanent uh, harm, at least to date. So that that's the good news about that. And there's a national database, yes, that collects uh, information about side effects that are short-term and any long-term that we might be noting? Right. Well, there's a so-called vaccine adverse events reporting system, which uh, is kind of... Uh, a, a hypothesis generating mechanism, but the better system is the vaccine safety data link, the vSafe system, which really can determine causality. Mm-hmm. Let's take a little break and we'll be right back with Dr. Paul Ovid from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. 
Thanks for listening to Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, exclusively presented by Independence Blue Cross. If you have a question for the medical mailbag, just send a note to doctor at yourradiodoctor.net. Hi, I'm Dr. Denny Carice, Chief Science Officer at Recovery Centers of America, and I'm here as your addiction expert. Today, I want to talk about addiction and how to evaluate if you might have a problem with drugs or alcohol. People often say to me, I think I might have a problem with drugs or alcohol, but I'm not sure. I hate to say this, but if you think you have a problem, you probably do have some type of problem. I mean, when's the last time you said to yourself, I think I might have a problem with broccoli, right? But if you want to see whether you meet the actual diagnostic criteria for a substance use disorder, which is the correct term for addiction, there's 11 symptoms we look at. Ready? First, are you using in larger amounts or for longer periods of time than you planned? Second, have you tried and been unsuccessful to cut down? Third, do you invest a lot of time obtaining, using, or recovering from use? And fourth, do you have cravings or really strong urges and desires to use? Number five, has your continued use led to difficulties at work, school, or home? And number six, have you continued to use despite frequent personal or social issues that your use has made worse? Seven, have you decreased or eliminated participation in social, job, or recreational activities? And eight, are you using in situations where it could be physically hazardous? Number nine, do you continue to use even when you know you have a medical or psychological problem that's caused or made worse by your use? And ten, do you need more drugs or alcohol to achieve the same effect? That's called tolerance. And finally, eleven, do you have withdrawal symptoms when you stop using the substance? And it's not just a yes or no answer. If you have two or three of those 11 symptoms, you meet criteria for a mild substance use disorder. Four or five symptoms qualifies you for a moderate substance use disorder. And six or more, and you meet criteria for a severe substance use disorder. If your loved one has a problem with alcohol or drugs, call 1-888-RECOVERY today or go to recoverycentersofamerica.com. We answer the phone and admit patients 24-7. That number again is 1-888-RECOVERY. I'm Lisa Thomas-Laurie. If you're on Medicare, I've got great news. Keystone 65 HMO plans from Independence Blue Cross have earned five stars, Medicare's highest rating for 2022. Some plans have no monthly premiums, no deductibles, and no co-pays for primary care visits and some prescription drugs. Don't wait. Visit ibxmedicare.com star. Every year, Medicare evaluates plans based on a five-star rating system. Keystone 65 offers HMO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Keystone 65 Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. This is a paid endorsement. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction. You are not alone. If you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your whole family can begin to recover. At Recovery Centers of America at Devon and Lighthouse, your loved one will be treated with care by expert addiction professionals, while family programming will give you support and healing so that you can recover as well. RCA accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services. Call 1-888-RECOVERY now. And we're back on your radio doctor with guest Dr. Paul Offit, getting a great update on COVID vaccines, and soon we'll talk about the boosters. Paul, we were talking about really uh, a review of basics of the vaccines. One of those things I like to tell my own patients when they ask, what is this RNA vaccine? Well, in the lab, we have little segments of RNA that 
mimic a spike, the spike that we see on the COVID uh, virus. And by using that in a vaccination, our system takes up those little uh, fragments of RNA in the cell. That RNA does not enter the nucleus where the DNA lives. It will not change your DNA, right? Um, and it instructs our system to recognize any spikes that come down the road in the future and say, go away COVID and protect us from severe disease. The J&J vaccine though, is based on a, a vector or transported in by a little adenovirus. And um, so that works a little differently. And the protection is maybe about 66%. And that's why the recommendation from CDC is get the RNA vaccine when and where it's available for you. But that has become pretty much available to most people unless they're in a rural situation or something. Yes. Right. So, so the, the so there, there's somewhat different strategies. The way the mRNA strategy works is, well, the goal of the vaccine, of all the vaccines, is to make an antibody response to the so-called SARS-CoV-2 spike protein or surface protein. Because if you make an antibody response to the surface protein of the virus, then the virus can't attach to your cells. It can't enter cells mm -hmm. and it can't cause disease. What the mRNA vaccine does, which is different um, than, than, than other vaccines, normally if you want to make an immune response, for example, to this to the spike protein, you give the spike protein. I mean, that's the way the hepatitis B vaccine is made. You just give the surface protein. Mm -hmm. That's the way the human papillomavirus vaccine is made. You give the surface protein. And then the person makes, a, your body makes an immune response to that surface protein. You're not doing that here. What you're doing is you're giving the gene that, that encodes the surface protein. So then your cell takes that up and this little piece of mRNA joins 200,000 other pieces of mRNA that are in there that are making the proteins and enzymes we need to, to live. And then you, your body makes that spike protein. And that's the same way that the J&J &J vaccine works, except here the adenovirus, this common cold virus, um, sort of serves as a Trojan horse to bring essentially that gene into the cell. The reason that the, the, FDA, the CDC has expressed a preference for the Pfizer and Moderna vaccines over the J&J &J vaccine has to do with side effects. Um, the, the mRNA vaccines, while they can cause myocarditis, is generally that's a self-limited uh, phenomenon. The J&J &J vaccine mm -hmm. can cause blood clots, again, extremely rare, roughly one per 200,000 people. But, but those blood clots can be quite severe and in a handful of patients have actually been fatal. And I think that's why the, uh, the um, FDA, uh, I'm sorry, the CDC expressed a preference for the mRNA vaccine. Mm -hmm. But again, people should know that their DNA is safe. That is not, there's no disruption or, or uh, you're not going to turn into a different person. So if patients um, were to be in different categories, for whom would you recommend two shots in the primary series, as we call it, the first two vaccinations? And in whom would you recommend three shots, which is the primary series plus one booster? And then now there's a second booster. How would you... Um, separate people in those categories? Right. So I don't really think it is as boosters as much as, as two dose, three doses, and four dose primary series. The, the kind of I series see. that can cause you to, to develop high frequencies of memory cells, high, high, high quantities of memory cells that will allow you to be protected against severe illness, hopefully for years, if not longer. Um, I, I would say that for people who are over 65, who have multiple comorbidities, meaning the kinds of health problems that cause them to be at high risk for serious illness, I think that could reasonably be a four-dose vaccine. I think for people, any, I think people of any age, it's certainly over 12, or frankly, any age, I think any, any group of people who have multiple comorbidities, especially people who are immune compromised, uh, any, any people of any age should, can benefit from the third dose if they, if they have comorbidities. I think healthy people, less than 50 years of age, 
uh, frankly, only need two doses. I don't see any data to show that healthy young people benefit from the third dose. So I would say that, that that's who gets two doses are for pe healthy people less than 50, three doses are for anybody who has multiple comorbidities, and four doses are for older people who have multiple comorbidities. Good to know, because you don't hear that spelled out very often. So if if you're diabetic or you have uh, immunosuppression, we're going to consider a third and maybe even a fourth dose. So let's talk about the boosters a little bit. What have we learned from that? And what is your thinking on booster one and booster two? Yeah, see, the thing with boosters is, again, I think these are two, three, or four dose primary series. What a booster does is it boosts neutralizing antibodies. It doesn't boost your memory response. It doesn't make you more likely to be effect, uh, have better protection against seriously. It boosts neutralizing antibodies for three to six months which will then provide better protection against mild illness for three to six months. But is that what we want from this vaccine? Do we want to continue to have to boost people to protect them against mild disease? I think that is a very difficult public health strategy and not, frankly, a viable public health strategy. So I actually don't use the word booster. I, I think these are two or three or four dose primary series. And then um, I think the word booster should, frankly, drop out of our lexicon because it, it's all you're doing is boosting, is giving yourself a short-term boost for protection against mild illness. And we don't do that for any other similar virus, other, other virus like a mucosal virus oh. like flu, for example. So I think that's another very important distinction. We're not saying we're getting the whole team in your body ready to keep you. It's going to promise even more protection from serious illness, inter, uh, intensive care, and death. It's to prevent you from having mild illnesses. It's like people's dream to have a vaccine from the everyday cold. And then you have to weigh the, the benefit risk ratio and say, what does continued boosters, what does continued protection against mild illness offer? We don't know, right? I just think it's an unrealistic goal. I, I, I think mm -hmm. it, it, when, you, when you're naturally infected, I think you're going to be protected against serious illness for a, hopefully a long time. If you're vaccinated, sure. I think you're protected against serious illness for hopefully a long time. It is an unrealistic to expect that for any mucosal virus that you're going to get long-lived protection against mild illness and then you, unless you constantly give boosters, which is just not something we're going to do. I think at some level, if we're going to move from pandemic to endemic, we're going to have to realize that mild infection is going to be, be with us for years. Uh, as I said, mm -hmm. even if you vaccinated everybody in the world with this virus, with this, this vaccine, you, uh, yeah. you would uh, still see people who would get mild illness. And I just think we're going sure. to learn to live with that. Sure. So what do we, what do we know about the variants? What have we learned from them? The Delta was more contagious, but more severe illness. Omicron, um, we have subvariants BA1, BA2. Let's talk about those a little bit. All right. So the virus that first raised its head in Wuhan, the so-called Wuhan 2019 strain, was not the virus that left China. The virus that left mm -hmm. China didn't have a Greek letter designation. It was called D614G, but that's the one that swept across. Asia swept across Europe, swept across the United States, killed a couple hundred thousand people here. It, it, it was the one that had an advantage over the original strain because it was more contagious. Then that was replaced by the Alpha variant because it was more contagious. And then it, that was replaced by the Delta variant because it was more contagious, because the virus, this bat coronavirus, is constantly learning how to adapt itself to the human population. And then that was replaced by the Omicron variant, not because it was more contagious, it's because it was more immunovasive. Now, there were so many mutations in that sort of critical region of the spike protein called the receptor binding domain or the N-terminal domain, that now, even if you've been vaccinated or naturally infected, you could still get a mild illness. So suddenly with Omicron, 
there was a whole new group of people in the population who could get mild illness because it was immune evasive. That's also true for the BA2 variant and then these subvariants from BA2. So, so, so what you're seeing is exactly what you would expect to see. You see, for example, a surge in cases, but you don't see a surge in hospitalizations and a surge in deaths because what you're seeing now is a lot of mild illness. And, and so I think that's also confusing for people because we always are focusing on cases assuming that what is soon to follow three weeks, two, three weeks later, is a surge in hospitalizations and deaths, and that's not what we're seeing. Right. And a very important distinction. Again, thank you for that, that this is what you expect to see. I think people are have been on edge and they think that the next variant means it's like an app when people come up with an app for a computer program. It's going to be bigger and badder and nastier. Not necessarily. You're saying to hear from you, an expert in viruses and vac vaccinations, this is what we expect. It's okay. We're going from pandemic to endemic. And I think that's what will give people comfort uh, through this conversation. Um, at what point do you think there would be, I think you, you alluded to this earlier, to create a new vaccine to prevent illness from other variants? Right. So I think if a variant arises, let's say the Omega variant, you know, we'll make up a name, um, mm -hmm. that, that, that even if you've been naturally infected or vaccinated or both, it doesn't matter. You're still as, as at risk for severe disease as if you've never been exposed to either vaccination or natural infection. Then you're talking about making a variant-specific vaccine. Uh, hopefully, there'll be systems in place throughout the world to note when that variant arises. We'll see. It's, it, generally, it's not to the advantage of the virus to kill you because then you can't mm -hmm. spread the virus anymore. So I think what the virus is doing is what you would expect it to do, become more contagious, but not necessarily more lethal. Right. And we have a final minute here. So do you predict that maybe the flu vaccine will be given in combination with the COVID vaccine? Is that a possibility? Yeah, I don't. I mean, we get year? a COVID vaccine every year because, I'm sorry, we get a flu vaccine every year because even if you've been naturally infected the year before, you're still at risk of severe disease the following year. That's why we get a flu vaccine every year. So that, that doesn't appear to be the case currently with coronavirus. Oh, good. Good to know. Let's take a little break and we'll be right back with Dr. Paul Offit. Today's edition of Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross, can be enjoyed anytime, anywhere, at your convenience. Just download the Odyssey app and search Your Radio Doctor. It's health education on demand. This is Emily Rubin, dietitian with Thomas Jefferson University Hospital and PR Chair for the Philadelphia Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, presenting you with the Nutrition Tip of the Week. Bloat is a word I hear multiple times a day by my patients, especially with Irritable Bowel Syndrome. And Irritable Bowel Syndrome Month is April. So we've been searching for an IBS solution for years. Millions of Americans are estimated to have IBS, up to 15.3 million, according to the NIH. In fact, IBS is the second leading cause of absence in school and the workplace following the common cold. We know that patients with IBS poorly absorb certain foods, but this malabsorption can definitely lead to digestive woes and symptoms. For a long time, we didn't know how to accurately identify or remove these offending foods from the diet of IBS patients. Then, in 2010, a scientific breakthrough, more precise dietary treatment of IBS came about. Dietitians called this breakthrough FODMAP. Put simply, FODMAP is an abbreviation comprised of the first letters of various sugars and carbohydrates that naturally occur in foods. These sugars and carbohydrates are the culprits that cause the bloat, the pain, gas, diarrhea, constipation in many of our IBS sufferers. 
A food can have a high FODMAP, a low FODMAP, or no FODMAP at all. It is also important to note that the serving sizes can also change how well a person tolerates a specific food. For example, having a large amount of a low FODMAP food could turn into a high FODMAP food. Limiting a patient's diet to foods that are low FODMAP can actually reduce IBS symptoms up to 80%. Well, that's definitely very helpful these days. The first step is to remove potential trigger foods from a patient's diet. It includes anywhere from a four to six week period of time. Then with the help of a registered dietitian, one problematic food at a time is slowly reintroduced to the diet to see if a patient can tolerate that food. Once that food has been dealt with, a second trigger is reintroduced and so on and so on. Some of my patients have been able to reintroduce and enjoy foods with high FODMAP levels. Others must stay on a more restrictive FODMAP diet. Sounds great, right? It is, but you should know that it is not an easy diet to follow faithfully. You have to plan your meals, shop carefully, and read all the labels from top to bottom. Most of all, you have to try to be compliant for the entire four to six week period. However, if you can hang in there for the initial period of the diet, chances are you're going to feel better. Next week, we will discuss the more specific foods of FODMAPs. This is Emily Rubin, dietitian with Thomas Jefferson University Hospital and the Philadelphia Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, wrapping up the nutrition tip of the week. For more information, you can log on to yourradiodoctor.com. Hi, I'm Lisa Thomas-Laurie. If you're on Medicare, I've got great news. Keystone 65 HMO plans from Independence Blue Cross have earned five stars. That's Medicare's highest rating for 2022. Some of these Medicare Advantage plans have no monthly premiums, no deductibles, and no co-pays for primary care visits and some prescription drugs. And all plans include dental, vision, and hearing benefits with no co-pays for routine exams. Medicare's highest rating, Philly's most popular plan. Don't wait. Visit ibxmedicare.com star. Every year, Medicare evaluates plans based on a five-star rating system. Keystone 65 offers HMO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Keystone 65 Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. This is a paid endorsement. When you have orthopedic issues, you need a physician who eats, sleeps, and breathes orthopedics. You need an exceptionally specialized Rothman Orthopedics physician. They not only specialize in orthopedics, each Rothman physician only focuses on one area of the body, which means you can have confidence that you can get past pain and be what you were. Schedule conveniently online at RothmanOrtho.com. That's RothmanOrtho.com. Are you in excruciating pain brought on by your son, daughter, or spouse suffering from addiction? You are not alone. If you call Recovery Centers of America today at 1-888-RECOVERY, your whole family can begin to recover. At Recovery Centers of America at Devon and Lighthouse, your loved one will be treated with care by expert addiction professionals, while family programming will give you support and healing so that you can recover as well. RCA accepts insurance, provides transportation, and offers intervention services. Call 1-888-RECOVERY. Now, Your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, now Saturday afternoons at 5, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. And we continue our conversation about COVID and the vaccination and boosters. Paul, we were just uh, finishing our conversation about the role of the vaccine and <clears throat> that we're very hopeful that it won't be a yearly vaccine, but the flu vaccine 
is very important to get every year. And patients often ask if they can take a non-steroidal anti-inflammatory or Tylenol before they get the vaccine or the booster. And what do you tell them? No. Uh, there are a couple studies now. Um, one was done uh, in the Czech Republic. The other was done in Australia. Um, looking at people, in one case it was uh, influenza vaccine, in another case it was a series of vaccines. And what, what, in, what anti-inflammatories do is they decrease your inflammatory response, or said another way, they decrease your immune response. I mean, and so mm -hmm. you don't want to do that right before you get a vaccine. I mean, those studies that I mentioned show that when you did that, you decreased your immune response to those, to the flu vaccine and to a variety of other vaccines. So no, you should really avoid taking an anti-inflammatory like Tylenol or non-steroidal anti-inflammatory before you get a vaccine. Mm -hmm. And how many, how long should a patient wait after they've had the vaccine? Do you ask them to wait a day or two or is it okay? Yeah, just wait a day or two. I, I would think, think once so. Once you start developing an immune response, you should, because, you know, vaccines, including the mRNA vaccines and the J&J &J vaccine, can cause fever, headache, you know, muscle ache, joint ache, which is never fun. But if you can gut it out for two days, that would be great. If it's really that hard for you, you can take an anti-inflammatory after. That's, yes. That's, uh, and you're a pediatrician. That. And I think people have that thought in mind because a lot of times before your child goes for their routine vaccines, they say to give the child a dose of Tylenol or something before, but not here, definitely. So no, you shouldn't even do it there also. Yeah, in general. <laughs> um, so when we're talking about testing, I think it's worth repeating the distinction among rapid testing, PCR testing, and the blood test. Let's talk about those for a little bit. Yeah, the, the, um, the antigen test is generally the better test. I, I mean, I think that that's more likely to, 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 to correlate with the fact that you are excreting infectious virus. The best test, and it's, a, it's not a commercial test, is to look at the, the quantity of actual virus, infectious virus you're excreting, but that's a, a commercial, that's a, a research tool. The problem with PCR is that, that you, can, you, you will shed infectious virus usually for, you know, four, five, six, seven days, but you can be PCR positive for three months. Uh, you know, the, the, uh, I worked with a virus called rotavirus where, you know, you, you could detect virus in the intestine for, you know, five, six, seven days later. But again, you could be PCR positive for six months. So it, it's too sensitive, really. And it mm -hmm. doesn't really tell you anything other than at some point in your past, you've been infected with a virus. So that, that's the, the downside of PCRs. So it's a bit misleading. So for our listeners, we translate that as when you hear about the rapid test, you're going in looking for pieces of the virus itself. And we want to catch it within five to seven days of onset of symptoms. But it can have falsely negative results, meaning you have COVID, but we just haven't picked up one of those little virus friends. The PCR looks for RNA or RNA segments, right? Um, and in both of those tests, if clinically the person appears to be sick, we're going to repeat the test. The blood test, I think, again, we're all a little bit spoiled by the instantaneous nature of I don't know the answer. I can Google it. No delay in gratification, right? So we do, oh, let's do a blood test. And we find antibodies, but they might be antibodies from another very common coronavirus that you've had, you know, from a, a cold that's not COVID. So um, it sounds good, but it can be a little uh, deceptive as well. But recently, the FDA told us, wasn't it April 15th or thereabouts, about a new breath test. What do you know about that? Is that going to be our new? It's interesting, isn't it? Yeah, that, that, that uh, apparently, the, it's funny, they use dogs for this, for example. Like dogs can uh, detect whether or not you're infected with malaria. 
you know, that because yes. there's a certain uh, a sort of uh, smell that comes out of people. That, and that's true here, too. Mm-hmm. So so it's, it's, it's interesting. I think it's sort of taking advantage now of this new technology. Because it's about 91% sensitive, meaning it the pickup rate is good, and 99 plus percent specific for COVID-19. COVID so pretty awesome. Um, while we're on the subject of dogs, I've been reading that um, we were concerned, could pets transfer? transmit the virus to us but instead i think what we've found is that people can give it to cats we can't give it to dogs so much kind of interesting so be kind to your doggies and kitty cats and don't kiss them or share their bowls if you're sick (laughs) (laughs) i think not sharing their bowls is always a good idea just as a general rule but yeah it depends um, what's for dinner you know um (laughs) so pregnant women um Tell us what we've learned about women who are first pregnant. Is there a time that they should wait? Maybe is it okay to get the um, vaccine during first trimester? Or are there any other points that we want to share with our listeners? You know, I I think, you know, typically um, when trials are done, as were done, say, that were reported last December 2020 uh, with Pfizer and Moderna's vaccine, they didn't study pregnant women. And and when that's true, usually with the FDA and the CDC, will say that it's, it's contraindicated for use in pregnant women because we don't have data. But you knew that, that women who were pregnant uh, had a two to three fold increased incidence of being hospitalized or going to the ICU or dying uh, if they were infected with SARS-CoV-2, if they had COVID in women of the same age who weren't pregnant. So, so pregnancy was a, a risk factor. And so therefore, the, the CDC said that you could essentially, you could choose to get this vaccine if you wanted, because there weren't data at that right. time. Then tens of thousands of women, hundreds of thousands of women ultimately made that choice. So, so now you had a huge database where you could see whether or not Getting it in, getting the vaccine during pregnancy in any way caused a negative pregnancy outcome for 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 the for the mother or for the the uh, unborn child. And and the now you know that that vaccine was safe. It can be given at any time, first, second, or third trimester, um, as, because you really want to protect that woman. But again, the earlier the better. Good. So the vaccine does not increase risk of miscarriage and does not harm the baby. And again, for women who are pregnant, they're not more likely to contract COVID but they are more likely to become severely ill or, or die, um, especially those over age 35 or have the comorbidities that we concern ourselves with, hypertension, diabetes, obesity, and most recover without being hospitalized. And transmission to the baby is uncommon, yes, when the mom's carrying the baby. But when it does that's happen, right because, yeah. Mm-hmm. That's be, because this, unlike, say, rubella virus, you know, which is transmitted in the bloodstream, right. there's so-called viremia. It's part of the disease process. It's true for measles. It's true for mumps. It's true for a number of viruses like that. But that's not true for this virus any more than it's true for, for influenza or it's true for uh, respiratory mm-hmm. syncytial virus. Those, those sort of mucosal viruses, are the virus spread into the bloodstream is not part of the disease process. Therefore, the child mm-hmm. doesn't, doesn't get essentially these congenital syndromes that you can get with the other virus. Good to know. And if a baby does get the illness, they don't get very sick. Um, and they may have, we may see an increased risk of preterm births not stillbirth so much, but preterm births, which is another incentive to get the vaccine to protect yourself and the baby. Um, what about children? Where are we with that? Or, or And again, as a, an infectious disease specialist, as well as a pediatrician, what have we learned about um, vaccinating children and uh, different things that you'd like to share with us? Right. So, so a vaccine since May, a vaccine has been available for the 12 to 15 year old. And you have a lot of them. Unfortunately, about 55 percent of children in that age group have been vaccinated. But you know that now that it's safe and clearly it's effective. 
the vaccine for the 5 to 11-year-old has been available since the beginning of November. So you've had you know, a few months where that's been available. Unfortunately, they're only about 30% of, of uh, that children in that age group have gotten the vaccine, but it's, it's, it's quite uh, effective in preventing serious illness. And um, now, for, in terms of less than 5-year-old, um, those data haven't been submitted yet to the FDA. I suspect we, we won't be seeing those data until um, no earlier, I would think, than the, the end of May. But we'll we'll see how that plays out. Mm-hmm. And so you really encouraging people to get their children vaccinated. I think it's the Pfizer vaccine. Yes. For ages five plus. That's mm-hmm. right. And, and remember, it, it's this virus is, isn't going to go away. No. I mean, I think it's going to be pandemic, but this virus is going to be circulating in the world for decades. And so children grow up to become adults. So it's, it's good to get protect yes, them early given, and likely that likely will prevent them from having serious illness sure, for a long time. Given that shield of armor even sooner. Masks. Where are we with, with masks? I, I know that there was a federal judge in Florida that overturned the national mask mandate for airlines and other public transportation. Let's talk about that a little bit. Right. So again, the purpose of masks is to, is to protect the healthcare system. In other words, we if, if we want to try and keep people from getting seriously ill, because if they if a lot of people get seriously ill, you're going to have trouble taking care of all those people with COVID, as well as all the other people you need to take care of in the hospital. Um, so I think we're at a stage in this pandemic where you know the viruses that are circulating don't seem to to dramatically increase that risk of hospitalization and death. And so you know you could make the argument that really. Do we really need mask mandates now? Um, I know that the way that sort of generally the, the news agencies carry this is, is that, oh, my God, it's awful that uh, the federal judge did that. Breaking I'm, news. I'm not so sure I agree with that. Well, and I think, too, um, everybody means well. Divide, you know, united we stand, divided we fall. Everybody wants to help. Um, but the confusion, that word that we float around here and there, um, I think people all have good intentions. But it's interesting. You watch people interviewed, say, on TV and you have the video. And I, I saw a lady being interviewed today and she said, I wouldn't go anywhere without my mask. And it's barely covering her mouth and her nose is right out there. And I'm thinking, gosh, you're not protecting yourself. And if you happen to sneeze, we're sharing whatever you might be carrying. <laughs> so um, people mean well. And uh, I know that SEPTA and Amtrak have removed their mask requirement um, in the Philly airport. I think you have to wear your mask in the terminal, but once you're in the plane, the airlines are making their own decisions. Yes. Yeah. Although you know, it's interesting. They, and so now, in theory, there's a Philadelphia mask mandate. So, so last night, the Philadelphia mm-hmm. 76ers played the Toronto Raptors in Wells Fargo Center. That's an indoor arena. Therefore, everybody should wear a mask. If you watch that game, I didn't see anybody wearing a mask. So I'm not sure how this mask mandate is playing out in the city. Yeah. Um, well, and I guess uh, I think it's been in reaction to the the rise in the BA2 subvariant, yes? Yes, that's right. And again, it, you know, is, is, is this variant put a lot of people at risk of serious illness? Remember, right now you have about 90% population immunity between natural infection and immunization. And I think that's mm-hmm. why you're seeing the numbers come down. And I think there have been little sub-experiments because if you were allowed to, if on a plane, for instance, you have to wear a mask, but you can take it off to uh, drink or eat. And if it takes somebody an hour and a half to drink that cup of coffee, then, and we didn't see a rise. I guess we've already had <laughs> some indirect data to say it's okay. Let's take a little break and we'll be right back for our wrap up with Dr. Paul Offit. Your Radio Doctor with Dr. Marianne Ritchie is presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. 
Hi, I'm Lisa Thomas-Laurie. If you're on Medicare, I've got great news. Keystone 65 HMO plans from Independence Blue Cross have earned five stars. That's Medicare's highest rating for 2022. Some of these Medicare Advantage plans have no monthly premiums, no deductibles, and no co-pays for primary care visits and some prescription drugs. And all plans include dental, vision, and hearing benefits with no co-pays for routine exams. Medicare's highest rating, Philly's most popular plan. Don't wait. Visit ibxmedicare.com star. Every year, Medicare evaluates plans based on a five-star rating system. Keystone 65 offers HMO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Keystone 65 Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. This is a paid endorsement. When you have joint pain, you need a physician who eats, sleeps, and breathes joints. Someone so focused on their specialty, they've written the book on it, literally. You need an exceptionally specialized physician from Rothman Orthopedics. They not only specialize in orthopedics, each Rothman physician only focuses on one area of the body, which means you can have confidence that you can get past the pain and be what you were. Schedule conveniently online at RothmanOrtho.com. Official orthopedic partner of the Eagles, Phillies, and Sixers. And in our final segment of Your Radio Doctor, we've been so fortunate to have Dr. Paul Offit here to, dis- to update us with COVID vaccines, boosters, mask mandates, and a great discussion, Paul, and thank you. I know that um, it took 27 years to design and bring forth the rotavirus vaccine, and, and we can thank you for that. Where will we be Let's add 27 years to COVID. What will we look back and say about how we approached this pandemic? I think there were things that we did remarkably well and things that we did remarkably poorly. I think that you have to give credit to the Trump administration, basically for within an 11-month period of time, from first isolating the virus to having two large clinical trials using a novel technology, mRNA, that that, uh, clearly showed that, that a vaccine was safe and effective was remarkable. And the way they did that was they took the risk out of it for pharmaceutical companies. They just, it's like betting on a race. Instead of betting on one horse, they just bet on all the horses. And um, and they said, we'll pay for the phase three trials, meaning the, the prospect, the placebo-controlled efficacy trials, we'll pay to, pay to mass produce the vaccine at risk, which no, no vaccine maker would ever do. We'll pay for the building, we'll pay you know, to produce it. And if the vaccine doesn't work or it's not safe, then we'll just end up throwing those, uh, those uh, doses away. And, and that $11 billion effort enabled that to happen. And then what the Biden administration did that was also remarkable was they figured out how to mass produce these vaccines, mass distribute them, and mass administer them in a healthcare system that was not geared toward mass administering vaccines to adults for free. Mm-hmm. And it was, it was hard, you know, for most people had very easy access to this vaccine. That was all great. I think what we did poorly was we, we were very slow to sort of try and, and restrict travel into this country, initially from Asia and then from Europe later, uh, to try and decrease spread. That would have helped earlier on, but we didn't do that. I think we had a lot of science denialism in the previous administration uh, regarding regarding this virus. And I think th- there was a lot of sort of magical thinking in terms of you know using hydroxychloroquine or using ivermectin or Clorox chewables or whatever the hell else they were promoting in that last administration. There was just sort of off base. Yeah. And I think here what we've done yeah. wrong is I think we haven't 
made it very clear what is the, the, the goal of this vaccine. I think the use of the terms breakthrough, I think it's unclear to people what, what the, the role of boosters is here. I think, I think most Americans don't even have an idea of what it means to be fully vaccinated at this point. So I think we could be clearer about how we uh, explain this, that what can, one can reasonably expect from these vaccines to the American sure. public. And I guess then we have to say, too, how do we keep more COVID from not coming into the country? Well, at this point, it's too late. I think now now what we need to do is I think we, we're going to need to have a highly vaccinated population for years, if not decades. So I think this is not a one off. It's not like, OK, now we're good. Because remember, every year, three and a half to four million children are born in this country who are completely susceptible to this virus. And they will be susceptible to this virus as long as it's circulating in the world. Remember, we still vaccinate children every year in this country for polio. Exactly. We haven't had a polio. Uh, we haven't had a case of polio in the United States since the late 1970s. It's been almost 50 years. Why? Because polio still, you know, circulates in the world. It's still in Pakistan. It's still in Afghanistan. Um, and international travels come. And that's why we still do that. And this is going to be true for this virus as well. Mm-hmm. Paul, where can we direct our listeners if they want to read more and even review some of the things that you said today? Right. So we have at Children's Hospital Philadelphia, we have something called the Vaccine Education Center. And the website is vaccine.chop.edu, where we try and answer everybody's questions about COVID. So we have a lot of COVID information about there and information about both the disease and the vaccine that I think can be helpful. And also the CDC has a website as well. Mm-hmm. Vaccine.chop.edu to learn more and review the talking points that we discussed today. Dr. Paul Offit. Really, a man for all seasons. Thank you so much for joining us. I learned so much from reviewing everything with you, and I hope our listeners did too. Thank you once again. Thank you. It was my pleasure. For your real champion, I call this segment Yes We Can Day or A Kiss for Billy Penn. Why is it that so many people find chocolate to be irresistible? Well, scientists might say it's because it contains chemicals that affect the brain, like anandamide, from the Sanskrit word meaning joy, bliss, or delight. This and other chemicals are stimulants, plus, fat feels good on your tongue. And maybe we love chocolate because it stirs up childhood memories. Well, in 1907, the iconic Hershey Kiss was born in Derry, Pennsylvania and manufactured straight through to 1942. Then for six years, Milton Hershey redirected use of his production equipment to produce chocolate rations for the U.S. military during World War II. Plus, aluminum foil was being rationed. Then in 1947, it was full speed ahead And if you visit Hershey, Pennsylvania today, you learn that the factory makes 70 million kisses each day. Now enter Rich Lachlan, an eighth grade history teacher from Newtown Middle School in Newtown, Pennsylvania. He always wanted to teach civics and wants his students to grow and learn through experiences not found in a textbook. So what's the number one industry in Pennsylvania? Agriculture. But did you know that Pennsylvania is also nicknamed the snack food capital of the world? Pennsylvania ranks first in production of chocolate, potato chips, and pretzels with more than 2,300 food processing and manufacturing companies in the Keystone State. In early January 2021, Rich raised an idea with his students. COVID was upon us, and he wanted to do something creative and positive. His proposal? 
Since Pennsylvania is the number one manufacturer of chocolate in the U.S., let's come up with a state candy. There are several candy companies in the state, but the Hershey Kiss is iconic, and here are all the reasons why it's a great idea. Number one, what better time in history to remind everyone that love is the answer. The Hershey Kiss should be our state candy. Two, our state's largest city is Philadelphia, the city of brotherly and sisterly love. Billy Penn would be sight. And three, the town of Hershey is paradise. The park, the factory, camping, the entire town smells of my favorite food group, chocolate. And they have an awesome medical center. Rich and fellow teacher Matt McCarthy invited students to a Zoom meeting before class. Eight enthusiastic girls signed up, and it's been a long process learning to be an active citizen and dealing with politics. But these students have also learned the value of creating history. They now see that bringing an idea to reality is possible. These eight students are now ninth graders. All are very involved with other activities like sports, clubs, and they attend Council Rock North High School. They've created a website, thekissforpennsylvania.org, thekiss4pa.org, and post their progress on social media. They've been working with the Hershey Company's Director of Communications and with government officials, State Senators Collette, DeSanto, Sierro, along with State Rep Mahaffey. Rich mentioned another benefit. The girls now have formed a special friendship outside the classroom. They've matured through this unusual and wonderful process, and they've learned how to communicate with politicians. Rich says, if we want civic involvement, we have to teach our students how to be part of the process. The more involved, the more familiar, and the more they'll trust the system. Parents are extremely appreciative. Matt and Rich took the students to Harrisburg in March, where they spent time visiting the lieutenant governor and were guests at a session of the state senate. The democratic process is long but fascinating. The bill has passed through the Senate committee and awaits a discussion in the state house. Then on to the governor. We salute you, teachers Rich Lachlan and Matt McCarthy and their superstar students, along with the Hershey Kiss and the town of Hershey, the sweetest place on earth. You're real champions. A special thank you to our exclusive sponsor, Independence Blue Cross, along with support from Recovery Centers of America and Rothman Orthopedic Institute. We're grateful to all of our guests for sharing their expertise and time each week. This was an especially helpful show because we learned so much in the update on COVID vaccines, boosters, and testing. Listen to this show again and all of our shows on yourradiodoctor.net. I also offer special congratulations to all of our real champions. This has been a trying time for us as Americans, and I really believe the stories we share each week are about people who are good for goodness sake. My hope is that you are lifted by the power of positive and inspired to do good work as well. Maybe you'll hear about a champion on our show and get involved. Donate your time, talent, or treasure these are ordinary people doing extraordinary deeds. And at this time of fear, doubt, and anxiety, these stories will remind you that the world is filled with good people. So send me the story of a champion in your world. Send an email to info at yourradiodoctor.net. Friends, remember too, there is a critical shortage in our national blood supply. Consider donating. 
check the website redcross.org. Now, promise yourself that tomorrow you'll take a nice long walk and enjoy the beauty of nature and spring and know that I love you. And that's why I am your radio doctor, Marianne Ritchie, always here to remind you that your health is your wealth. Thanks for listening to your radio doctor, Dr. Marianne Ritchie, presented exclusively by Independence Blue Cross. To contact Dr. Marianne and to listen to today's show as well as past shows, visit yourradiodoctor.com. This program is a paid commercial announcement and does not reflect the views of WPHT or its management. Today's program has been pre-recorded. Hi, I'm Lisa Thomas-Laurie. If you're on Medicare, I've got great news. Keystone 65 HMO plans from Independence Blue Cross have earned five stars. That's Medicare's highest rating for 2022. Some of these Medicare Advantage plans have no monthly premiums, no deductibles, and no co-pays for primary care visits and some prescription drugs. And all plans include dental, vision, and hearing benefits with no co-pays for routine exams. Medicare's highest rating, Philly's most popular plan. Don't wait. Visit ibxmedicare.com star. Every year, Medicare evaluates plans based on a five-star rating system. Keystone 65 offers HMO plans with a Medicare contract. Enrollment in Keystone 65 Medicare Advantage plans depends on contract renewal. This is a paid endorsement.